Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June 27th edition of WarCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal affirmed a 100% award to a professional hockey player under the 1997 rating schedule. Adam Nittel's tenure as a hockey player for the San Jose Sharks began in 1997 and ended in 2002. In 2007, he filed a claim for workers' compensation benefits, alleging a cumulative trauma injury. During his career with the Sharks, Nittel suffered concussions and injuries to his ears, nose, face, teeth, jaw, neck, arms, back, and hips. He gave and received body checks, was slashed with sticks, and hit from behind. He fell to the ice and smashed the boards. At the time of trial, he could not close his jaws to chew food, forcing him to rely on drinking his food in liquid form. He had hearing loss and ringing in both ears, neck injury, shoulder pain, elbows that locked up, limited wrist mobility, back and hip pain, swollen ankles, and legs that would collapse and give out, requiring him to use a cane, and he had frequent nosebleeds. He was 31 years old at the time of trial. He was awarded 100% disability equivalent to weekly payments of $490 for life. At issue in his case is whether the 2005 schedule for rating permanent disability applied, even though his injuries predated the enactment of that schedule. Nattel was injured and placed on the injured reserve list almost every season he played for the Sharks. During 2001, he missed time from work due to surgery on his left wrist. For this reason, the Sharks were required to provide him with the notices regarding permanent disability indemnity under Section 4061. The work comp judge determined that since the Sharks failed to provide Nittel with the required notice, his case fell within one of the three exceptions for application of the 2005 rating schedule set forth in Labor Code Section 4660. The Sharks and their insurer petitioned the board for reconsideration of the award. The WCAB granted reconsideration and found that since Nittel did not file his compensation claim alleging injury until 2007, the Sharks did not have an obligation to pay temporary disability or to send a Section 4061 notice. The Court of Appeal, in the unpublished opinion of Adam Nittel versus WCAB and the San Jose Sharks, disagreed and reversed. Because the Sharks paid Nattel's salary continuation under his contract during the time he was on injured reserve status, the court concluded that the facts of this case fall squarely within the statutory notice exception. Regulation 9814 says that when an employer provides salary or other payments in lieu of or in excess of temporary disability indemnity, the claims administrator or employer shall comply with the notice requirements which apply to temporary disability. In addition, the claims administrator or employer shall include a full explanation of the salary continuation plan with the initial notice. The failure of the Sharks to provide this notice was reason to use the 1997 rating schedule. The termination of an L.A. Unified District's teacher for workers' compensation fraud was upheld by the Court of Appeal. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Sablia Portillo v. Commission on Professional Competence and the Los Angeles Unified School District. Portillo was employed by the district for over 20 years with no previous history of discipline. 
She was a permanent certificated employee, served as a teacher, and most recently held the position of assistant principal at an elementary school. In 1992, Portillo filed a workers' compensation claim, which was settled with stipulations including future medical care. Portillo then submitted and was paid for claims for Bally's gym memberships, totaling nearly $3,800, and for mileage to Bally's consisting of hundreds of round trips amounting to nearly $9,000. The Bally's claims were fraudulent. Some of the membership fees she submitted was never charged by Bally's, and the mileage claims for visits to the gym were grossly inflated. Bally's records showed that Portillo visited the gym only a few times. As a result, a 16-count felony complaint against her was filed in 2005. And in 2007, she pled no contest to a single count of making a knowingly false or fraudulent statement a felony and was found guilty. This was deemed a crime of moral turpitude. She was placed on probation and was ordered to pay $12,000 in restitution to the district. In 2007, the governing board of the district notified her of its intent to dismiss her from employment, finding she was guilty of immoral conduct and evident unfitness for service. Portillo requested a hearing before the Commission on Professional Competence, which issued its decision upholding the district's determination to dismiss her. Portillo then filed a petition for writ of administrative mandate in the Superior Court seeking to set aside the Commission's decision as well as reinstatement and back pay. Portillo's appeal contended that the dismissal was improper because she was fit to teach and that the legitimacy of her benefit claims were within the exclusive jurisdiction of the WCAB. The Superior Court denied her petition and Portillo filed a timely notice of appeal. The Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal. The Education Code sets forth various grounds for dismissal of a permanent employee, which includes conviction of a felony or of any crime involving moral turpitude. The Court of Appeal concluded that not, not only was Portillo convicted of a crime of moral turpitude, but she directed the fraud at her own employer. Portillo engaged in a continuous course of dishonest conduct over an extended period of time. Dismissal in these circumstances is authorized by Education Code Section 44932, Subdivision A. Nearly every national chain doing business in California is under legal attack for failing to provide suitable seating for cashiers and other employees who are expected to spend most of their workday on their feet. Trial attorneys by the dozen are using an obscure California labor law requiring retailers such as Walmart, Home Depot, and Target to have enough seats on hand for their workers. Superficially, the allegations appear to be little more than a nuisance, but armed with two recent appellate decisions that allow workers and their lawyers to use California's novel private attorney general provisions, the retailers are now facing millions of dollars in damages. A first violation calls for as much as $100 per employee per pay period and double that for subsequent violations. Lawyers say those penalties add up for big box retailers that employ hundreds of thousands of workers. Some of the first lawsuits were filed in 2009 and are based on Section 14 of Industrial Welfare Commission Wage Order 7-2001. This is a seldom used and relatively untested provision of the Labor Code that requires employers to provide seating for their employees under certain circumstances.
Plaintiff attorneys used the Private Attorney General Act of 2004, specified in Labor Code 2698, to sue employers for violations if the government fails to enforce this wage order. Penalties consist of $100 for each aggrieved employee per pay period for the initial violation and $200 for each aggrieved employee per pay period for each subsequent violation. The first of the two key appellate decisions turning that phrase into law was issued in November. The stampede to the courthouse began shortly afterward. Lawyers predict that more than 100 such lawsuits have been filed throughout the state. The first appellate ruling overturned a lower court's decision tossing out Eugenia Bright's lawsuit against 99-cent only stores. The company's lawyers argued that the phrase wasn't a law because it doesn't expressly prohibit retailers from failing to provide suitable seating. It read the passage as a suggestion rather than binding law. A trial court judge in Los Angeles agreed and tossed out Bright's lawsuit. The appeals court based in Los Angeles disagreed and a unanimous three-panel judge panel said interpreting the provision as merely a suggestion would be contrary to common sense. The California Supreme Court refused to review the decision and it is now the law. Bright said her lawsuit could encompass more than 1,000 current and former company workers. A second appellate court decision and a lawsuit filed by a Home Depot clerk met a similar fate in December. The court tossed out Home Depot's argument that the provision was a mere recommendation and relied heavily on the Bright decision to reaffirm the suitable seating law. Angela Church, a GameStop Incorporated clerk in San Bernardino County, was among the first to sue after the appellate court's rulings. She filed a lawsuit in December alleging they required her to work without being provided adequate seating during work hours. And now our fraud report. A California Department of Corrections employee has been arrested for fraud. Oscar Fuentes III of Willits was arrested in Mendocino County on two felony counts of insurance fraud. He was booked into the Ukiah branch of the Mendocino County Jail and his bail has been set at $60,000. According to investigators, Fuentes allegedly suffered a work-related injury in 2003 to his neck, back, and upper extremities while moving bunk beds into a flatbed truck while he was employed as a warehouse manager with the California Department of Corrections facility at San Quentin State Prison. In 2006, Fuentes received an award based on his permanent disability rating of 45%. The state fund also paid over $27,500 in medical benefits and other expenses. Fuentes then filed a petition to reopen his claim with the WCAB asking for 100% disability. An AME disagreed with his petition and said that Fuentes significantly overreported his symptoms and limitations. Investigators later used video surveillance and found that he was actively coaching baseball and carrying baseball equipment, raking the infield, chalking lines, and hitting baseballs to players. Fuentes was also seen mowing a lawn and passing boys as they rode all-terrain vehicles. Fuentes did all of these activities without any signs of pain or discomfort. The case is being prosecuted by the Sonoma County District Attorney's Office. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Central District of California reports that Pedros Ochanya of North Hollywood, the manager of a Tahunga medical supply company, has been sentenced to 51 months in federal prison. 
This individual was the manager of RL Medical Supply and pleaded guilty in 2010 to conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud. He built the Medicare programs by submitting claims for durable medical equipment that was unnecessary and in many instances never provided to patients. As part of the scheme, he submitted claims to Medicare that were supported by forged prescriptions. While the forged prescriptions identified actual Medicare beneficiaries, these beneficiaries had not obtained the prescriptions and did not need or did not receive the durable medical equipment. RL Medical Supply submitted more than $1 million worth of fraudulent claims to Medicare, which paid out approximately $600,000. This individual was arrested in May 2008 after an investigation by multiple federal agencies. And in financial news, California has topped the Chief Executive Magazine's worst states list for business. More than 500 CEOs considered a wide range of criteria from taxation and regulation to workforce quality and living environment in the annual ranking of the best states for business. The report shows how each state fares on the factors most essential for a business-friendly environment. It's the seventh year in a row California ranked as the worst state. The Golden State was closely followed in the lowest rankings by New York, Illinois, New Jersey, and Michigan. Wisconsin and Louisiana posted the two biggest gains since 2010, with Oklahoma also showing the biggest gains over the last five years. Louisiana has been quietly stealing pages from the Texas playbook. By contrast, Illinois has dropped 40 places in five years and is now in a death spiral. Business leaders graded the states on a variety of categories grouped under taxation and regulation, workforce quality, and living environment. According to the responding CEOs, California, once a business-friendly state, continues to conduct a war on its own economy. Survey respondents uniformly say the state's regulators are hostile. One California CEO said that no one in his right mind would start a new manufacturing concern here. Job growth in the Silicon Valley has flatlined. Firms are keeping their headquarters there but pursuing growth in friendlier states. Google, Intel, Cisco, and other companies locate new plants in states such as Arizona, Utah, Texas, Virginia, or North Dakota. The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau of California has prepared its report containing estimated California workers' compensation costs for 2010 based upon insured employer experience. This report is mandated by the California Insurance Code. Key findings are as follows. In 2010, $4.3 billion, or 60% of total lost payments, were for medical services. The total dollars of medical payments did not change appreciably from 2009 to 2010. Orthopedic cases accounted for about 53% of the costs of all medical legal evaluations. The average cost of a medical legal evaluation was $1,715. Psychiatric evaluations were the most expensive, averaging $3,220. In 2010, $2.8 billion, or 40% of total lost payments, were for indemnity. 2010 earned premium totaled $9.7 billion. Insurer incurred losses were $7.2 billion, or 70% of the premium earned in 2010. However, loss adjustment expenses in 2010 were $1.9 billion. 
This includes $608 million in defense attorney expenses in 2010. Since applicant attorneys were paid only $353 million, defense attorneys are paid about twice as much as their applicant counterparts. If you add this all up, incurred losses and expenses in 2010 were $11.2 billion, or 116% of earned premium. This report, therefore, does not show a healthy financial situation for the workers' compensation insurance industry in California. And now our medical report. Apportionment of permanent disability can be based on causation and risk factors. And new studies continue to show possible theories for apportionment. Research evidence supports the possibility that obesity and physical inactivity play a role in a person's risk of developing chronic pain. Dr. Paul Mork of Norwegian University of Science and Technology and his colleagues followed more than 300,000 adults who participated in a large Norwegian health study. They recorded participants' body mass index at the start of the study, as well as how often they exercised, and then tracked them over the next 11 years. They also looked at how many people in each category developed chronic neck, shoulder, and lower back pain. Overall, one of every 10 people in the study developed low back pain, and nearly two of every 10 developed shoulder or neck pain. The research team found that men who were exercising two hours or more per week at the start of the study were 25% less likely to have lower back pain 11 years later and 20% less likely to have neck or shoulder pain compared to men who didn't exercise at all. And women who exercised at least two hours per week were 8% less likely to develop low back pain than women who were inactive and 9% less likely less likely to develop neck and shoulder pain. Weight, not surprisingly, also affected the risk of chronic pain later on. Obese men were almost 21% more likely to develop chronic low back pain than men of normal weight and 22% more likely to develop neck or shoulder pain. And in regulatory news, Debates continue to rage over the legislative proposal to allow the state fund to sell insurance out of state. A California employer that is insured with state fund has to obtain at least one, maybe more, separate policies to cover their employees who work outside of California. The California's insurance code does not explicitly give the state fund the authority to provide that coverage. Proposed AB228 would clarify the California Insurance Code to allow the state fund to provide workers' comp insurance for all of a California company's employees, including any who work out of state. Most of the opposition to this proposi proposition or proposed law comes from the state fund competitors. Competitors argue that the state fund will have an unfair advantage because, as a public enterprise, they do not pay federal taxes. Proponents, however, argue that the state fund must fulfill an important mission as the market's safety net and comply with the significant requirements to take on all commerce. State funds' doors have remained open to employers no matter what since 1914. The new law is not a radical proposal. Of the 26 state funds around the country, 16 currently serve their state's employers by providing coverage for out-of-state employees. 
Approximately 45,000 employers have headquarters in California with documented out-of-state locations. State Fund's intention is to serve the subset of these businesses that are headquartered in California and also conduct the majority of their operations here. The fund has an estimate that 20 to 30,000 California businesses may qualify. And in other news, the Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation has published an uninsured employer's booklet to help injured workers deal with uninsured employers. The 60-page booklet was prepared by the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment at the University of California, Berkeley. If an employer is illegally uninsured and does not provide workers' compensation benefits for a workplace injury, an injured worker may apply to the Uninsured Employers Benefit Trust Fund to pay those benefits. The booklet provides useful information on reporting workplace injuries and applying for workers' compensation benefits. It discusses 10 basic steps to apply for benefits if the employer is illegally uninsured. The booklet is a resource for anyone who needs guidance in obtaining benefits and it provides options for obtaining additional assistance. It also is a resource for anyone providing assistance on behalf of an injured worker. Contact numbers and sample forms are included in the appendix. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.